0: الحمد لله وكفى والسلام على إباده الذين صفا أما بعد فاوض بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم والذين جاهدوا فينا لنهل ينهم سبولا سبحان ربك رب الإزد عم ما يصفون والسلام على المرسلين والحمد لله رب العالمين Allahumma salli ala sayidina Muhammad wa ali sayidina Muhammad wa barik wa sallim Allahumma salli ala sayidina Muhammad wa ali sayidina Muhammad wa barik wa sallim Allahumma salli ala sayidina Muhammad wa ali sayidina Muhammad wa barik wa Over the last few weeks I um was working with a Hafiz Bisharat on a little booklet Which we uh, entitled Rest Ups of Remembrance. And essentially, this booklet is a guide to some of the du'as that the Prophet would make throughout the day or on very specific occasions. For example, there are some du'as that the Prophet would make at the time of waking, or at the time of sleeping, or at the time of eating, or when completing a meal, or um, when the day would begin, when the night would begin, etc. And um, inshallah we'll have copies of that available. Uh, it's uh, We printed some copies and we um, have been editing it and inshallah the new version will be sent to the printers and then we'll have that, we'll make that available for everyone who would like a copy. Um, inshallah by tomorrow or the day after it will be on our website as well. So um but in doing that, um, because we were reviewing and studying and thinking as we put that book together, uh one of the um important features that uh that was that was placed in the book was the various dua that the Prophet ﷺ used at the beginning of the day and the beginning of the night. And um because this period is the beginning of the as I was reviewing and putting together my thoughts, um, I also began to think that like, this also is the beginning of the night, uh, even though we meet on a Sunday at Maghrib, it's technically the beginning of the night. So it might be a good habit to, on occasion, present some of those as well, along with the dhikr that we do, so that all of us can get in the habit of uh, making those duas. And we put together, admittedly, I think you have to remember that uh, when when Uh, you know, one companion is bringing one du'a, another companion is relating another du'a, a third companion is relating a third du'a. So um, if you put them all together, it becomes many. But um, what we did was we selected a very simple, easy sequence of those du'as, and each one kind of covering a theme. I think that that whole um, sequence doesn't take more than perhaps uh, three to five minutes to recite, and uh, it's something that we should be in the habit of doing every morning and every evening because there's lots of benefits associated with it. So the reason that I took this pause here, and by the way, the, the reason this is also dominant over my, we just finished a retreat. If I look tired, that's why I, don't, I actually can't even pick up my hand. But uh, we just finished a 36-hour retreat this morning. And uh, one of the features of that retreat was that we also went through that booklet and uh, you know, the brothers there were also reviewing that booklet with us. So um, anyway, uh, I just wanted to get it pulled up on the screen, but maybe it's a little complex. So what we'll do is uh, just to introduce you know, this notion and make sure that we all embed this in our routine. But by the way, let me just also establish that uh, the best dhikr, the best dhikr is always the dhikr that's established by the sunnah. And by the way, every line that's in our routine that we do once a week each of these has some established basis in the sunnah, or it's from the Qur'an as, as you see sometimes on the screen. But anyway, I mean, in, in the time of the morning, the time of the evening, etc. cetera, it's always best to embed the sunnah, sunnah in our routines. So I don't know if we can get it on the screen, and I was hoping we could just run it together in three minutes, five minutes, however long it takes. But um, since we don't have it, let's at least just do one together, and uh, in the future we'll add over time. Uh, and I'll just recite it, and every can, everyone can recite it over me. Uh, everyone can re- recite it with me. But uh, let me just introduce it. So, the first um, one, and by the way, the this, this sequence is arbitrary. The Prophet didn't say do this and do this and do this and do this. He simply just introduced a series of things that can be um, shared or recited at, that, at the time of the beginning of the evening. So, the first uh, of these du'as, which again is also in the booklet, is called um, the greatest istighfar. And uh, why it's termed The Greatest Istighfar? Oh, SubhanAllah. <laughs> that is good timing. <laughs> I should have said, take us to Jannah. <laughs> okay. Anyway, alhamdulillah. So um, The Greatest Istighfar, uh, essentially the, we taint, we, in the booklet we labeled the heading uh, for this chapter, The Greatest Istighfar. And the reason we labeled it The Greatest Istighfar is because the Prophet said that this is the best way by which a person can seek forgiveness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that there is no greatest, there is no greater mechanism of uh, more superior prayer for seeking forgiveness than this prayer. And in particular, the Prophet ﷺ specified, by the way, this entire narration is in the Book of Imam Bukhari, okay? In particular, the Prophet ﷺ specified that the individual who recites this with conviction that uh, if they happen to pass away, if they recite it in the morning and they happen to pass away anywhere anywhere from the morning until the evening, uh, they will be a person of paradise. And the person who recites this with conviction in the evening, if they happen to pass away before the morning, they too will be a person of paradise. So you can see this is a great um, mechanism that we should in- embed within our routines, because literally in about 30 seconds, we can set ourselves up to enter paradise. Essentially what this does is remember that, what is the benefit of istighfar? Istighfar just returns us to our base level. Think of, if you think about it just from one angle, You're born with jannah. You don't have to earn jannah. You're born with jannah. Right? I mean, a child essentially dies. They're in jannah. So jannah is actually ours. It's a birthright. Uh, I I said this before, but it's like if you study American history, they say we hold these rights to be inalienable. We hold these rights to be fundamental to man, that uh, you have this right and that right, you know. And Anyway, uh, in, in, in our deen, you're, you're, you're essentially given Jannah. This is Allah's gift to all of us that we're given Jannah. And we then uh, simply have to maintain it. And the mechanism by which we maintain it is to just remain pure. We purify ourselves, our, ourselves from shirk, purify ourselves from kufr, purify ourselves from sin, purify ourselves from diseases of the heart, purify ourselves from certain manners... And this basically enters us into Jannah. All we're doing is really purifying ourselves. So this, when the Prophet says that the individual who recites this in the morning, and then if they happen to pass away by the evening, they go to Jannah, the reason is because this is such a powerful shower that it just washes away all of the sins of a person. Now, of course, if we have sins in which we wronged another person, then we have to make up for those. But, I mean, like I said a few weeks ago here, I think, you're not planning to go rob a bank after you're in the masjid, right? The presumption is that you're taking care of the major sins and that we as Muslims don't run around trying to perpetrate major sins. But essentially, we're caught up in minor sins consistently, and these minor sins get washed away by this type of isthikfah. So we should be in the habit of uh, reciting this um, every evening and every morning. And it's very simple and is very quick but it provides lots of benefits. So let's do it together. I'll put it on the screen. I didn't, didn't know we'd have it on the screen, but I'll put it on the screen. We'll recite it together. Allahumma <laughs> Anta Rabbi La ilaha Illa Ant Qalaqtani Wa ana abduk Wa ana ala Ahdika Wa wa'adika, wa'dika a'udhu bika, Min sharri ma sana'tu abu ulaka bi ni'matika alayya wa abu ulaka bi dhanbi faghfir la yu'fir ad illa ant so this is just a one of a handful of du'as that should be recited i think in our in the little booklet we put together, we put seven of these. So seven times 30 seconds is not much. You know, you're talking about, again, three to four minutes. Some of them are even shorter than this. I'm not going to do the rest of these. We'll do these slowly over time. But I just want you to recognize that uh, these, this, type of, um, this time of the day provides a very unique opportunity. And like I mentioned, inshallah, we will, um, once the book is printed, uh, or if you wait two days, it'll be on the website. You can download it and you can actually just begin to practice some of these basic adhikār as well, inshā'Allah. Okay. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He bestows countless countless blessings upon us. And and those blessings generally come with a responsibility. We can't um, make the presumption that the reason the blessings come is because we're being rewarded. Uh, for example, if a person says that uh, I've been given all these blessings, but the reason that I've been giving these blessings is because I'm being rewarded, then that is a type of deception because actually this is not a place of reward. This world is a place of test. And sure, when a person does good, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bestows good upon them, but the purpose of the benefits and blessings that were given is not to celebrate the purpose of the benefits and blessings that were given is actually to expose or express the fact that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one who provided these, and that we recognize that these are not the goal, but rather these are mechanism to achieve Allah, which is the goal. Now, this deception arises very often in our society because we happen to be blessed with abundance. And we somehow come up with the mistaken notion that this is our opportunity to pamper ourselves rather than our opportunity to to attain and earn the jannah that Allah has best, uh, given us the opportunity to attain through these blessings now first point first is that what do you mean you're going to be asked about whatever blessings you were given well let's just go back for a minute there's many ways we can prove this but we can go back to a very uh, very uh, well known incident that will occur on the Day of Judgment. And all of you are aware of it, but perhaps you haven't thought of it from this angle, but everybody has heard the famous incident where, you know, some of the earliest people to go into the hellfire will be those people who will be brought before Allah. This, In particular, the example of a person is given, will be a person who will be brought before Allah and will have been a scholar, but will have been a scholar for the sake of gaining fame. Or will have been a Qari, but will have been aqari for the sake of gaining fame, or will have been a mujahid but will, be, will have um, uh, engaged in jihad for the sake of being called brave. Now, all three of these people who are given as examples in this narration that I'm referring to, which all of you have heard before, and essentially what happens with each of these people is that uh, they make a claim that the reason I became a scholar was for the sake of the deen, or the or, or I became a scholar, I became a Qari, I became a Mujahid, and essentially it's established on the Day of Judgment that the reason that they did that was not for the sake of Allah, but rather the reason that they did that was for their own name, fame, glory, etc., whatever it might be. So this I think is well known, and the lesson that we all take from this is that the purpose of what we do should never be anything except the pleasure of Allah. We're not doing what we do in order to gain uh, people's attention. If I give a donation uh, at the masjid, the reason for giving the donation is not so that people can appreciate me and put a plaque on the wall. The reason for giving the donation is because I am more in need of giving than the masjid is of receiving. So there's a completely different attitude that the Muslim has because they are not focused on themselves. They are focused on the opportunity and their need to connect with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But take a step back, and the reason I raise this narration is that in each of these instances, if you go through that narration a little more carefully, in each of the instances, what happens, it's described, that the, in, the initial state is described. And it's specifically mentioned on each instance that the person is said, you were given X, Y, and Z blessing. So what did you do with it? You were given X, Y, and Z blessing, so what did you do with it? Now, let's go back, let's pick one example. You were given X, Y, and Z blessing, so what did you do with it? I became a scholar. Well, but you became a scholar so that people would call you a scholar. So go and ask them for your reward. But here, your result is going to be jahannam. Right? So notice that the whole scenario that you're very aware of, it's initiated by the question, what did you do with your blessings? How did you reciprocate the blessings that were bestowed upon us? Or how did we reciprocate the blessings that were bestowed upon us? So we have to ask the hard question before we're asked that day. right? We have to ask that hard question, what are we doing with the blessings that Allah has bestowed upon us? And how are we reciprocating the fact that He gave us those blessings? Every blessing comes with a responsibility. To think that somehow we're being showered with a reward is actually thinking that we're in Jannah. When we're not in Jannah, we're in this world. This world is a place of test, which means that each responsibility is not a reward. It is really a test, asking the question, what do you do with this, given that Allah has bestowed this upon you? So we have to be exceedingly careful to understand this point. Now, all of us recognize this, and perhaps we best recognize this in the context of the wealth that Allah has bestowed upon us. And we all know that the wealth that Allah bestows upon us is really just an opportunity for us to be able to spend in order to earn, or at least attain, I should say, in order to attain his blessings so that we can get into jannah. This is a key criteria of the wealth that we've been given. And we should be very clear about this. The purpose of our wealth is to liberate ourselves. It's our opportunity. Each person is given their own unique key by which they can un- Um, bind themselves from the shackles uh, shackles of their mistakes and their sins. Our unique opportunity, if we happen to be blessed with wealth, is to spend that wealth in the name of Allah. And, ironically and interestingly, the spending of the wealth in the name of Allah never decreases wealth. Although it feels like that, externally, outwardly, it appears to be that I'm decreasing my wealth. We know two things. Number one, if we give from the wealth of Allah... Allah will increase us in this world. That there is no such thing as emptying our account except that Allah refills it. And number two, that every wealth that we give in this world, every penny that we give in this world, will be captured by Allah and will be all that remains because what we spend on ourselves will never benefit us in the hereafter. What we spend on ourselves will not benefit us in the hereafter. What actually is saved, what actually remains of our wealth, is that which we spend on others because that's what allows us to be able to maintain it in the hereafter. So this is the general premise with wealth and all of us know that. And honestly, it's a, it's a daily challenge because this is the biggest deception. You know, uh, we're, we're very attached to wealth by nature. And we're very, um, we, we, we make lots of justifications in our mind as to why we've been given this wealth and why we deserve this wealth. And I worked hard and I'm so smart and I'm such a good Muslim, so this is why. You know, we make all these ideas and we, we create all these scenarios in our mind and paint these pictures in our mind as to why we should be spending on ourselves and not on others. But I mean, this premise is exceedingly clear. Sometimes it's hard to hear, but it's exceedingly clear. Everyone knows that we've talked about it before. I want to take it one step further today. And I want to say that it's not just the physical wealth that is a responsibility, but there's another type of wealth that alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah, we've been given. And that wealth is the wealth of our deen. And this wealth of deen also carries a responsibility. When a person is given the blessing of deen, It doesn't mean that they can revel and celebrate in their experience of deen without having a concern about ensuring that they do what they can to share that deen. It's like any other wealth. If I said to you, hey, you have $1,000 in your bank account. What's the best way to increase that $1,000 and maintain the blessings of that $1,000? We would all say, I should give a percentage of it in in sadaqah. I should share it with others. I should seek those in need and I should present it to them. That will benefit me by increasing my wealth, by bringing more barakah into my wealth, and by preserving my wealth, both in this world and in the hereafter. The same is true, however. The same is true, however, of the blessing that Allah has bestowed us with, which is our deen. The deen is a type of wealth. And every one of us has this wealth because you're sitting in this masjid. And the fact that we're sitting in the masjid is not because I'm some special guy, or some special gal, or because I've done something unique and I'm so talented, so this is why Allah put me in the masjid. No, there's great talented people out in the world, far more talented than any of us in this room, yet Allah gave us and made us trillionaires. Not billionaires, trillionaires, and trillionaires is an underestimation, I can't use a word, I don't have a word in the English language to express what this blessing of deen is. But if we've been given this blessing of Deen, it's not so that we can sit and just uh, um, not worry about the rest of the world and not worry about the people around us and just think that somehow all I have to do is revel in my blessing and not worry about anyone around me. No. If we've been given this wealth of Deen, it's like any other wealth. It carries responsibility. And that responsibility, it includes making sure that we spend some of it in the benefit of others. Now, to think that I have to be a scholar in order to benefit others would be the same like thinking I have to be a millionaire before I'm going to donate. Sometimes people create this false notion in their head. They say that, you know, I can't do anything. I'm just a simple guy. How am I supposed to benefit others? I don't know anything about, I know very little about my dean to begin with. But I would go back a step and say, do you need to be a millionaire to donate? No. If you have a half a date seed, you have half a date, right? a pit of a date or half a date, donate it. Donate some of it. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will give you the benefit of that even if it isn't a large amount. Sometimes even just the smallest amount can provide a great benefit. So that excuse is out the window. Every one of us should be just, okay, let me put it this way. Just like every one of us works in order to maximize the wealth that we have, and should be working to maximize the wealth that we donate? In the same way, every one of us should maximize the deen that we have, but also needs to maximize the amount that we donate. And I mean the amount of the deen that we donate. Now, what do I mean by that? What do you mean donate the deen? How am I supposed to go out there? I'm not running a masjid. I don't get to sit in front of the the, the mimbar. No, that's not the way that the deen has to be shared. Let me ask you a simple question. In your wealth, What's your first sphere of responsibility? Islamically, what's the first sphere of responsibility with the wealth? It's the family, right? If you take care of your family, then the community becomes stronger because nobody else in the community has to take care of your family. In fact, it's very frowned upon. If, in, look, you're not permitted to go give wealth and then leave your family hungry. Correct? You're not permitted to go give wealth and leave your family hungry. But why is it that how would you how would we think that we're permitted to go and do every worry about everybody else's dean, but leave our family empty? It's the same, it's the same thing. The first sphere of responsibility in our physical wealth is our families, and the first sphere of responsibility in our spiritual wealth is our families as well. And we have a primary responsibility to ensure that we bring deen into the home. Now, deen into the home doesn't mean that you turn the home into a madrasah, because you'll have the whole house run away from you. Deen in the home just means to bring Allah, the remembrance, basic remembrance of Allah, the basic principles of purity, the basic essence of the deen that all of us have in our lives, to bring that into the home as well. Now, how can that occur? That can occur by ensuring that we spend time, first of all, it starts by spending time in the home. I was reading, one of the scholars was writing that uh, he was very frustrated. This is 100 years ago, 100 years ago, one scholar's writing, he said, I feel so frustrated that people leave their home to spread the deen, but they don't even do anything in their home to share the deen. And subhanAllah, it's true, it's true. So each of us bears a responsibility which is to establish and share the dean in our homes. Now, what does it mean, share the dean in the home? Look, once a week, every one of us should gather the family together. Should gather the family together for 10 minutes. For 10 minutes. And maybe you pick some book that is simple. Again, you don't want to get too detailed, right? You just want general principles because you can't impose on people. You have to have wisdom. So you want to do this, you want to give the same dawah that the Prophet would give, right? Which is, here's the basics of this deen. So every week, maybe five minutes, ten minutes, seven minutes, you tell the family in advance, look, uh, seven o'clock on Thursdays, we as a family are going to sit together and, um, you know, there's five of us. Uh, This week, you're going to say something about the greatness of Allah. Next week, you're going to say something about the sirah. Next week, I'm going to say something about uh, some aspect of the deen. Or maybe you say, we have this book. I'll read a paragraph today. Everybody can say what they felt. Next week, we'll read another paragraph. Doesn't even need to be anything major. It's not what you say that matters in those gatherings. It's the fact that you turned to Allah and cared. It's that much. Just to show Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that we care, that we recognize that we have been given this blessing and that this blessing isn't going to be maintained by me uh, punting the responsibility to the masjid, to the imam, to the Sunday school, and to the full-time Islamic school. That's secondary. Those things are there. But look, as a, as a person who has responsibility sitting in this seat, I don't have access to, your, uh, to certain people in your family. Maybe I get a chance to speak to you. I'm not going to get a chance to speak to every member of of your family. You have access to your family. Now, it was acceptable, although that scholar is complaining 100 years ago. In my mind, I was thinking, he's complaining. He's in the Indian subcontinent. Why is he complaining about this? It's a minor issue at that time. Why? Because, okay, if the family, if the, if the the head of the family didn't take the responsibility, then at least there's a layer of protection. Because the whole society is Muslim. The school is Muslim, the teachers are Muslim, all the people surround you are Muslim. So if I fail, then at least they'll be the the children or the next generation will be will be saved by a series of safety nets. But there are no safety nets here. We're in the middle of how we ended up where, we're in the middle of this place. Right? If, If my safety net is out, the next step is very dangerous. So If every person were simply to just take this responsibility of doing something really basic with their family. Now again, I'm not talking about like imposing deep fiqh on on the family. Fiqh is not something you impose on people. Fiqh is something that comes naturally when you love Allah, you love his messenger, you want to figure out how to attain. It's a secondary, it arises secondarily. If you sit with the kids and tell them you guys are wasting your time on your phone, you guys are wasting this, TikTok is haram, this and that, they're not going to listen to anything you have to say. All all you did was break the connection. But look, if you spend every day after school an hour with your kids doing homework and you talk nothing about deen, just you spend an hour with your kids doing homework every day, now what happens? You bought a connection. Do I really care about physics and my, my child learns physics? Maybe not. But if I'm sitting with my child and teaching and working with them on physics, I have another goal in mind, which is like, hey, this is a way I can communicate with them. I'm developing a connection with them. I'm going to use that. I'm I'm earning capital. I'm going to spend that capital one day. One day, when I have something to say, I spent six months talking to you about this, this, this. One day, when I have something to say from my own heart, it's going to be much more likely that they're going to listen. So we have to spend time with the families. We can't just, like, ignore the families and go off and I'm sitting and eating in a restaurant. I'm sitting with my friends and chatting because my house is so frustrating. I can't deal with anybody in the house. If we can't deal with anybody in the house, it's not the house's fault. It's our fault. Honestly, it's just a reflection of what's inside of us. It's not a problem with the the house that everybody's uh, gone gone awry in the house, so I'm going to run away and go someplace else. No, this is my primary responsibility. I can't just escape and drop it and just go. Then who's going to take care of it? Nobody's going to take care of it because there's no other line of defense here. Every one of us in this room, mothers, fathers, and children, have a responsibility for the family. We have to spend time with the children, and we had children. You don't just have them and they just grow up by themselves. It's a responsibility. And we're going to be asked about this responsibility. You're not going to be asked about uh, some house uh, you know, uh, 40 miles away from here. You think on the Day of Judgment Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to ask me about what's happening to the family in Bolingbroke? No. First question is going to be me. Second question is going to be my family. I have a responsibility towards my family. So I have to spend time investing in them. And that means that I have to put time in. It doesn't just happen, you know, it's not going to just happen magically. Now, the dean has certain requirements, and I have certain things that I need to do, and I'm not saying that we can't do the extra things, but we can't forget about the fact that we have a responsibility. And honestly, the strength of the community doesn't come from the strength of the imam in the masjid or some uh, a madrasa or some like group of people. It comes every community's foundations is always the family. It's always the family. Each family is a building block that forms a community. If every single person were simply to take care of their family, we'd be done. The community would be elevated a whole layer so quickly. I gave this example over the retreat. I was speaking about this topic. And one of the things that we talked about in the retreat was that uh, there's studies that are done that show like how many people you normally collect, connect with socially. So I know, put social media aside. because Social media is its own beast. But just if you ask the question, a, a normal human, what is their domain of uh, connection? And the domain of connection is about 150 people. Okay, so every person has a domain of, of about 150 people. Now, my immediate domain and sphere of influence is who? My immediate domain and sphere of influence is my kids, my spouse, my immediate family. But then I also have a domain of influence beyond that. For example, I have cousins, I have aunts, I have uncles, I have nephews. That's a big amount. You, you really feel it when you make the wedding invitations, right? People make the wedding list and say, oh my God, we got 200 family members. How are we going to fit anybody else here? It's very common. People will say, I've got 150 family members. This whole hall is already full. Now who am I supposed to invite? But that 150 family members, that's an opportunity for every one of us. If, if, look, a very simple calculation. Just for a second, let's do a very simple calculation. There's 100 people sitting here, okay? If these 100 people have a sphere of influence of 100 people each, how many is that? Multiply it quickly. 10,000. Maybe we have to sit and do homework together. <laughs> 10,000. 100 times 100 is 10,000. Am I doing it correctly? Who's a scientist? 10,000. So it means that in this gathering alone, the ability to affect 10,000 people is present. If you scale, that's called scaling, right? where one person touches another set of people. This is how the internet works. You send it to one person, they, you send it to your hundred people, they send it to their hundred people, and you start with one piece of garbage and it spreads throughout the whole world. Okay? This is exactly how the internet works, it's, it's, it's scaling. But this is how the deen works uh, too, in the sense that it scales. You have one messenger, so I send them. He presents it to a group of companions. The group of companions go out and spread this to each of the people that they have influence over. And over time, this thing scales until you become a billion people. Right? SubhanAllah, it starts with one man but it starts with one sincere man who cared, who cared enough about his community. Initially, the Prophet's da'wa dawah began with just his family members, and eventually it begins and it spreads throughout his tribe, and then the people of the Quraysh, and then from the people of the Quraysh, it spreads beyond. It does, it, it, it's, sp- it's scaling, it's scaling, it's scaling, scaling, until it becomes who we are today. But we are who we are today because somebody cared beforehand. Right? For example, you know, you say, oh, it was easy in the back, in the good old days, one chief converts, and the whole tribe follows. But why don't you ask the harder question? Why Why does the whole tribe follow? Why does the whole tribe follow? The whole tribe follows because that chief built connections. That chief of the tribe, the head of the tribe, develops connections with people. There's family connections. There's Different bonds that have arisen over time, and that bonds and connections gives them some degree of of, of influence over that, that sphere of people. So, if we don't, for example, here, if you're the chief, if I'm the chief of the family, and I never make a connection with anybody in the house, right? Because I don't care. I just want to tell you about the dean. I don't want to do anything else. I don't want to deal with anything else. I'm just going to give you a lecture about dean whenever I open my mouth. I have built no connection with the people. So how can I influence the people in the home? We have to be invested in the home. We have to participate in the things that apparently seem very, very trivial, but they're not trivial because they connect you with another person. It's a good thing to spend time with the kids doing their homework. It's a good thing to ask the kids how their day was. It's a good thing to talk to the people in the house even though it might seem like to you, like this is a waste of time. I got bigger and bigger bigger and better fish to fry. I got to go read my book in the corner. I've got to go do my tafsir. I've got this important friend that I have to meet somewhere and have food with. But, but, the, but then how do you develop a how, If you don't have a connection, how are we going to develop a sphere of influence? So every single person in this room has been given a certain degree of wealth. And the, by wealth here, I mean the wealth of the dean. But to share that wealth requires an investment. It requires that we develop connections with one another. It, def- it requires that we talk to people about what they want to speak about. I'm not saying we have to do anything haram, but where is, there, where is there the harm in asking how your day was? Where is there the harm in asking, what do you have for homework today? Where is there the harm for asking, do you want to go do this? right? But if we don't spend any time, and then y- people come to me, and I get this every day, that's why I'm so heated about it, I get this every day, M- my family is upside down. I'm doing all this great work. Nobody in the house is praying. It's not the house's fault. It's the chief's fault. Fine. In some occasions, some occasions, I understand that, you know, you work and work and work and you're sincere and good-hearted and it doesn't work your way. Somehow Allah tests you and, you know, this particular person in the family happens to go off and needs some time before they return. I agree that that happens. But that's not the primary diagnosis. It is a diagnosis. It's a possible. It's on the differential of diagnosis. Sorry, I'm talking medicine. It's on the differential. It's on the possible list of diagnoses. But it's not the primary diagnosis. It's not the most common diagnosis. The most common diagnosis is that we failed as chiefs. I got no connection with my kids. I got no connection with the people at home. I don't have enough time to talk to my neighbor. So now how am I supposed to influence them? Well, when it comes to Islam, I want to tell you God is one and that Muhammad is his messenger. So I tell them, what are they going to listen to us? That's not the way human beings function. You have to have a connection with them. You have to understand them. You have to uh, communicate with them. They have to have a bond with you. And then at the right time, at the right moment, you have the ability to be able to share this important message. So very important that every single one of us handle our own domain. The imam and the masjid cannot handle all the family problems. The imam and the masjid is not going to be able to clean up. People come all the time. They bring you you the subject at the nth degree. They, they bring the family member, or they bring a person that, this person doesn't pray, this person doesn't this, this person doesn't this. Can you sign them up for hifs? This person's this, this, this. I want to, do you have any space in the Islamic school? This person's gone way astray. Uh, I think I, they should go in this madrasa Is there any room for admission? That's, a, that's like a complete shirking of our responsibility, complete uh, denial of our responsibility. And now we want to like try to solve it at the end, Hour, uh, by just putting them in this environment. Alhamdulillah, Allah accept the intention. At least we care that much. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make that a mechanism by which we can uplift our families. But the responsibility primarily falls on us. In this society especially, there, it falls on us. We have to invest time, spend it with our children. We have to build connections. We have to build bonds. We have to connect with every member of our family. We have to call the people in our family to see how they're doing. And then what happens is that silent connection slowly begins to infuse some goodness within the people. And that, inshallah, will lead to a a great degree of advancement of the community. Now what happens is in the context of that, if you ask the imam in the masjid, in the context of that, if you ask the Imam of the Masjid to give a lecture, it's so much easier for the Imam and the Masjid to be able to uplift the entire community. Because now they just have to do small little touch-ups. They don't have to like try to carry every single person's family on their shoulder, which is never possible, by the way. So again, the summary, uh, long-winded, but the summary here, is that Allah Subhanahu wa ta'ala has blessed us with deen. Allah Subhanahu wa ta'ala has blessed us with deen. It's a great blessing. But it carries a responsibility as well. It carries a responsibility. And that responsibility is that we have to share it. And it's through the sharing of it that we'll be able to grow it, develop it, uh, increase it, advance it. But in order to share it, don't forget that it needs to occur in, the, in a backdrop of trust. It needs to occur in a backdrop of a relationship with others. And it's when we have that type of relationship, when we build that type of capital, between one another, that we're able to then eventually uh, make our claim and present with wisdom what we're trying to achieve. And it's far more likely for that to lead to uh, the the, the establishment of deen in the homes than just assuming that it's arbitrarily going to occur and then cursing everybody in the family when it doesn't. That's just not the way the world works. Again, I'm not saying we shouldn't do the good things that we do. Yes, we should take the time to do the things that are important to us. We should advance in our dean. We should make contributions to the community around us. We should take responsibility on our shoulders. Those are all important things. But we should always keep in mind that we have a primary responsibility of the family. And the moment we have a family, that means that we have a responsibility towards that family. When I'm home, I should be home. I should be participating. I should be an active member of the family. The Prophet when he was at home, Aisha <laughs> <laughs> Anha describes what was he like at home. He was actively participating in the home. He's like, uh, you know, uh, stitching things. Literally, stitching things at home. Now, if I walk in the door, I'm so tired, I put my feet up on the couch, and I say, everybody, where's my food? Where's my this? Where's my that? You're not participating in the home. You're just a king who walked in the door. That's not participating in the home. Participating in the home is to get up and say, hey, what's going on in the house? How can I make a contribution? What can I do to make the entire family unit move one step forward? That creates capital. That creates trust. That creates an opportunity for perhaps maybe a a, a few months down the road to be able to share a piece of guidance. But that requires effort as well. And this is a responsibility that falls upon all of our shoulders. And again, if we don't do it, I don't know what will happen 20 years from now. You know, 20 years from now, anything can happen. You see what's happening in the community today. You see how families are disintegrating. You see how people literally are leaving the dean. You see how much confusion there is, how much chaos there is. Over and over and over and over, over again, I'm getting these calls. I'm talking to people. People are telling me their stories. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. And it doesn't mean that there isn't hope. It just means that we have to double down on our efforts. It's even more important for every person in this room to give time and attention to their family. It's even more important for everybody in this room to be involved with their family. People, you know, our children, I'm not going to be able to do the thicker because I have three minutes, so let me just finish here. Our children, when they go out into the world, they should see the stark contrast of the purity of the home versus everything else. It should not even be a comparison. They should see that my home was pure and I don't find that purity anywhere else. When I hang around with these people, I see that they're drinking, I see that they're swearing, I see that they're fighting, I see that they're backbiting, I didn't see any of that in my home. It's such a stark contrast that they just want to return home. That should be the the environment of the home. But that environment, to have that type of environment in the home requires an investment. It means that everybody's putting in their time particularly the, the, the mother and the father. They have, they're, they're the primary people that are responsible for this. And we all carry that responsibility. Now, if the home, even if there was minimal deen in the home, but there was just this degree of purity and cooperation in the home, that's sufficient to act as a counterbalance to the options that are present outside. Because the options that are present outside, they don't compare to Islam at all. It's like the sun and the moon. Islam is so high, so pure, so great, that even the tiniest bit of it distinguishes darkness from light. So it should be clear to like, our children, when they go outside into the world, that they don't find what was in their home in any other place. They don't find what's in the masjid in any other place. And that's why it's so important. Even in the masjid, it's got to be a place of purity, a place of goodness, a place of a positive message, a place where they feel welcome where every person feels welcome where they don't feel judged you walk in the door and everybody's judging you you don't want to come back the next time we all come as sinners we don't come as judges is the judge we're, we're, we're just a bunch of sinners coming to the laundry everybody brings their dirty clothes to the laundry this is just the laundry mat so i mean all of these things they should they should they create an environment that protects us and protects our dean but anyway i went on so many tangents the simple summary again is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has blessed us with this deen and that this blessing carries a responsibility and as part of that responsibility we have to spend uh, we have to spend on others and by spending on others here i mean taking the time to develop the connections so that we can deliver the message that we want to deliver even if it's silent and by the way the silent message is way stronger than anything ever said you just create a positive home environment the children will look and say, why was it that way? Without saying a word, because I represent Islam, they see prayer, they see the sunnah. They'll, they don't need to, you don't need to give them any kind of like calculus here. It'll be, it'll be dead obvious to them. But if we don't invest the time, we're never around, we don't participate, every time we're home, it's war, there's it's a food fight going on constantly, what are they going to say? They're going to say the outside world looks so much better than what's here. And even worse, I go to the masjid, I hear all these positive things, but I never see it on the Muslims that I interact with, which let's say in this case would be my family members. So we should take this responsibility very seriously because these are our families and this is our next generation. It's our own homes. It's what we'll be asked about. It's our next generation. And it's our opportunity to be able to expand our own deen. because it's in the context of a good, strong family that we can then comfortably go out and handle the rest of the world. That, that's what allows us to be able to focus on all the other things that we need to do. Once I know that my family's tucked away, they're in good shape, their iman is good. I mean, imagine if your family's hungry, how can you go out and enjoy anything else? Right? We wouldn't be able to. If the family's hungry and starving, you're never going to be able to enjoy all the other bounties of the world. But if the family's hungry and starving of Deen, how are we going to be able to go out and take advantage of all the other opportunities that Allah has presented to us? So we have to invest time in our families. Each of us needs to spend the time, take the energy, have the care, have the concern, regularly engage with the family for a certain period of time, and on occasion, deliver the message that we hope to deliver vis-a-vis the sake of Allah and the deen. Again, may Allah make us amongst those who are able to appreciate all of the great bounties and blessings that he's bestowed upon us. And may, may, may He make us amongst those who are able to develop tight relations uh, with each of our family members. And may, may He make us amongst those who are able to share this deen with each of the people that we engage with.